But first up on the show, we are joined by a dad in White Rock who has launched, along with his son, an online map that reports on COVID-19 cases. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Bernard Trest. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Well, what prompted you and your son to go out on your own and do this type of data collection and entry and sharing? Well, what's been occurring, and we can see this in the media, is that there's been a lot of exposure events, and we know this is taking place at grocery stores and workplaces, but they're not really discussed in the public. We're not made aware of, of what's occurring and where it's occurring. So we know that the virus is in our communities, and we're being made aware that it's within schools, but it's also in workplaces, it's in grocery stores, it's in shopping malls, and people go to these establishments, they also go to restaurants, and they don't know where this virus is this critical life-saving data that people are not being provided with. And we just felt that it was time, if our government is refusing to do this, it was time for us as citizens to take charge and to actually champion this cause and to provide this data to people, such as seniors and those with underlying conditions or those that even are afraid of long-haul symptoms. Um, There was a case in the Ministry of Health building where Dr. Henry works. There was an exposure event that took place, and there were only close contacts that were informed There were other people in that building that work in the same building as Dr. Henry that were not made aware that there was a person that had COVID in that building. So that person could have been taking an elevator with the exposed individual. um, I mean, there's a lot of cases where that person could be exposed. It could have been in a staircase. And these people are being kept in the dark. We just thought it was about time to let people know what's going on and also which businesses are following proper safety protocols. And so how are you getting your information? So what we are, we're a citizen-driven initiative. We're crowdsourcing, compiling, and sharing the the data, and we're trying to provide transparency. Uh, We will be anonymizing data from any citizens that we collect, and we're going to be combining it with the little information that is available from health authorities. So we're hoping, and what it should do, is finally empower people uh, to keep them and their families safe. Um, It's interesting, since we started this site, we've actually seen comments, such as uh, just a recent one that was just posted prior to this interview, it says, good for you. It's common sense to have this information. Uh, because it has been one of the concerns, and I know you were actually in the news in the beginning or closer to the beginning of this pandemic uh, with concerns over the school plan and, and the lack of transparency there. Certainly people have been asking for uh, more information uh, about right. this. Do you think you're, you, able, you will be able to, uh, with taking these anonymous reports, you will be able to provide accurate information to people? We feel that we can. Uh, what we're going to be doing is we're, we're going to be making every attempt uh, to try to verify any information that is provided to us. Uh, so depending on the tip that comes in, uh, we're going to be asking for, for further details. We'll be following up. We're asking for an email address, a phone number. Uh, in one case, when uh, Tipster reached out to us last night, we actually reached out uh, to the business owner uh, in the hopes that they're going to be transparent and verify the information that we were provided with. So we, we're actually taking it uh, uh, to that extent. Uh, we want to be sure that the information we provide, uh, we're not creating a gossip site. We, we, this is critical, life-saving information that people have a right and a need to know and to share. Um, you know, I, again, people do their grocery shopping. They, they go to the stores and they need to know where there's a potential for them to be exposed. The other thing that this will do is if someone, there is a situation in a, in a mall, Mayfair Mall recently, where there was an exposure event. But uh, So people were told that there was an exposure that occurred inside the mall, but they were not told as to where that infected person was so if this person was in a store it would make logical sense if people were aware of which store that person was in 
in such a case, if someone said, well, wait a minute, I was in that store when that person that was infected was in that store. If, if the person that was in that store that was shopping would experience even minor symptoms, they're more likely to get tested if they know there was a chance they were exposed. And this, the, a map similar to this, I know the Vancouver Sun had published maps that had been done by researchers at SFU, uh, where you could actually punch in your home address and you could right. see where the color on the map and the color, uh, a certain amount, uh, the darker the color, the more uh, um, exposures that they were in your neighborhood or in, in say, close proximity where, to where you might live. I guess one of the questions is the timing of that, though. And, and if people, if we're talking about something, are, like, are you able to tell people that this exposure on what specific day or do we know if it's an historic exposure right well that's what we're asking for we're asking for as many details as possible and whatever details we're provided with we're going to try to verify them uh, to the best of to the best of our abilities and then we will share that with the public you know again when you're dealing with life and death situations we we have to err on the side of providing as much information as possible to people because their lives are at stake um, you know, our, our motto is simple, share the info, see the info, stop the spread. And that's the other thing we can do. We, we can stop the spread. Um, you know, we know that information on school exposures, it, it's not enough because it's not the only place where people can potentially be exposed to where this virus is circulating. So we need to stop it. And the, the BCCDC, uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau has been requesting that the BCCDC in our province implement the COVID alert app. But the BCCDC has refused to implement the app. On top of that, uh, the COVID alert app, it's reactive rather than proactive. So our goal is to actually let people know where the virus is before they're even exposed to it. And the other thing is that if people uh, follow our website, they'll also be alerted and they may find out later if they were in an establishment where there was a COVID exposure. Uh, The other thing that we're going to be doing is we're requesting that citizens let us know about businesses uh, that they feel have unsafe COVID-19 safety protocols in place. So again, this is something that we're going to try to verify by means of either a photograph or through other methods. And if we can verify this information to a certain extent, the public needs to know. So for example, we're being encouraged to still frequent small businesses and restaurants and so forth, but we know some of them may not be following proper safety protocols. And before other people go to this business, others should know because again, some people have underlying medical conditions that places them at a higher risk of serious health complications and deaths. So they don't want to be exposed to this virus. We need that information so we can protect ourselves and our families. And just to, to clarify as well, when you're getting these reports, are you asking people then, say people who have tested positive, to tell you, and again, doing it anonymously, or are you asking people to say, well, I know there was an exposure at my office, or I know there was an exposure here because we got a notice and pass that on to you? No, we're strictly going to be dealing uh, with, with exposure events that occur at malls, community centres, restaurants, bars, places of worship. So, for example, if there's an employee at a, at a workplace or at a specific store in a mall, Mayfair Mall is a prime example of this. Uh, there were employees there that tested positive, but no one can say which store these employees were at or if they were just a worker in the mall or so forth. This is information that the public needs to know. So that's, that's what we're asking for. We're asking if you, if you know of an employee in a business, that has tested positive or or if there's a situation where, where you feel there's an unsafe practice to let us know more details about it so that we can share that with others. All right. And people can find you. It's a Facebook page? Correct. Correct. And I was going to add in, so there are certain establishments such as Loblaws. Uh, they do make some information available, but they only leave that information up for 15 days. What we're doing is we're providing more of an extensive background as to COVID potential exposures at a particular business. 
So if you see that multiple exposures are occurring at a specific business numerous times, you know that either there's a problem with exposure in that community or that business does not follow proper safety protocols. That's a judgment call that's, that's, up, to, that's up to the people at this map to make. All right. So, Bernard, thanks so much for joining us uh, to talk a bit more about this today. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. And please stay safe. Well, uh, an information bulletin from Interior Health that talks about COVID-19 activity in the Revelstoke region, saying that there are numerous new cases. Uh, last week, uh, the first memo said last week there were 22 new cases of COVID-19. Seven new cases were confirmed the previous week and saying on a per capita basis, the recent case counts are higher than many other areas of the province. And uh, then there was confirmation that there are actually more than 85 cases in the Revelstoke region. That's been the count since the start of the pandemic. So what is happening in that part of our province? Cody Yonker, who is a Revelstoke City Councillor, is on the line with me now. Thank you so much for being back with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, What do you know about uh, these cases and just how many cases of COVID-19 there are there? Yeah, so I guess that's a really good question. Um, I saw the press release that came out about a couple hours ago, and the confusing, confusing thing for me is that our local Revelstoke Mountaineer put out a press release on December 30th, which confirmed the 22 cases, um, which was in the report today. But those were confirmed from December 20th to 26th. So as of December 26th, up until today, which is, I believe, the 4th or 5th, we still don't actually know anything within the last 10 days. So we really don't actually know what the true numbers are. We knew a couple of weeks ago it was seven up until the 20th of December, the week before, and then 22. So we're not sure where we're at. As of now, apparently that's going to come out tomorrow. Hmm. So it is kind of confusing why this press release came out saying last week, because really it was almost two weeks ago. But nonetheless, um, rumors are going around town, lots of businesses having to shut down again because of exposure. So we know that COVID is running rampant through the community once again. And in the release, too, where it says uh, there is no specific source for the new cases, uh, that's got to be a bit concerning also with uh, with the population of Revelstoke and that area not being able to figure out where it's actually spreading. Yeah, it's absolutely, you know, concerning. Is it from locals that are going out of town and coming back? Is it from the, you know, thousands of people that are still here to ski and snowmobile? Um, Yeah, that's a really good question. Nobody knows. Um, And Interior Health clearly don't know either. Um, For instance, just about a week and a half ago, one of our local businesses had to shut down because of COVID there. And Interior Health actually put out a memo because they weren't able to actually contract trace everybody, which was, Again, very concerning because now they weren't even able to contact everybody that might have been exposed. And right before the school break, for instance, um, there was a, well, what I say, an outbreak. Interior Health hasn't said anything, but we now know from numerous sources and parents alone that um, there was approximately six to ten kids from the high school that contracted COVID, luckily right before the break. So they didn't have to shut down the school, but it just kind of seems to be everywhere right now. How are things going with people visiting Revelstoke? Like you said, it is a destination for outdoor activities, skiing, snowboarding. Are people still coming there and traveling there? Yeah, for sure. So when you talk to the accommodation sector, they're definitely not seeing numbers um, that they would usually be, but they're not empty. I mean, some are, some aren't. Um, I work at one of the local grocery stores and one of the managers there, and the people coming through the till, I mean, it's a small town, so you kind of know everybody's face and who's who kind of thing. The majority of shoppers in right now are still not, they do not live here. They're out of town and many of them are admitting to it. It's funny, you know, one of my standard questions will be just like, where are you visiting Mm -hmm. from? And 
Many of them just don't want to answer. They kind of look away. And some do, you know, for instance, I had um, a group of guys in yesterday that came through and they're from Manitoba. There's six of them and they're here snowmobiling for the week and they didn't seem too concerned about COVID at all. So there are still a lot of people coming here and it's tough. Our businesses are doing everything they fundamentally and possibly can to protect their workers and keep their businesses going. But ultimately, people just some of them don't care. They're, they're going to come. Uh, how many businesses have closed down? Do you know? As of right now, I don't know that off the top of my head since the beginning. In the last week, there's probably three or four that I can remember that were shut down. Uh, a couple of restaurants, like um, one of the local spa hair salons shut down. I think they might have reopened now. It's kind of every week is three to four, it seems, are confirming exposures, maybe shutting down. Some of them aren't. Um, one of our local restaurants just reopened today after shutting down their dining as they had exposures. I believe Zalas has reopened. They were the one that uh, Interior Health identified as they, well, who they couldn't contract trace from. So every week is, is almost every day is something new right now. And just going back to that, when you're talking to somebody and you find out it's a group of six, uh, I, I'm guessing they probably aren't all from the same household who have come there for a snowball, snowmobiling trip and, and they don't care about the fact that people are being asked not to travel unless it's essential travel. How do you, how do you talk to a group like that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, I have no proof if, you know, they're, maybe they're six brothers or not. Definitely, I'm going to assume that they're not. Um, but it's concerning. And, and the one thing I said, I just blatantly asked them yesterday, I'm like, oh, so you guys are here snowmobiling, which the Snowmobile Club is doing a tremendous job. They have it on their website. Like, please don't come if you, you know, it's not essential to come right now. Come, you know, when you're allowed kind of thing. They're doing everything they can besides just rejecting people, as the province hasn't said to do that. Um, but yeah, they come through yesterday and I said, oh, and they said they're from Manitoba. I said, oh, what brings you here? Oh, we're snowmobiling. Oh, when you guys aren't concerned about COVID or anything? No, not at all. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's, you know, there's a lot of cases here. Yeah, no, we'll be fine. We're young. That was the answer I got. We're young. And it's just like, it's mind blowing. Like the, it's, it's unbelievable. That, that really is. That, that, that in itself right there shows that's the, the mindset of, yeah, they probably will be fine, but it's what they're right. doing to everybody else and the potential exposures. Exactly. And, you know, maybe they go back home to Manitoba and they expose, you know, somebody that's elderly or a worker that goes into a long-term care facility. It's just, it's honestly, it's so stupid. And I just can't believe it. And, you know, and... The, even we have Europeans coming through and I asked a, a family how they get, they came into Canada. They quarantined here for a few weeks and then they're going back home to Europe. And I'm just like, it's mind boggling. Thanks for being with us. So, well, yesterday during the news conference, the briefing with Dr. Bonnie Henry and health minister, Adrian Dix, some questions were asked about one specific long-term care facility in Vancouver, Little Mountain Place, which was uh, the scene of an outbreak that was declared back in November. But we now know that there have been 38 deaths due to COVID-19 complications and that more than 100 residents contracted the disease, along with 69 staff members. And Dr. Bonnie Henry was asked if there's been a change in how the numbers are related or reported to people, how they are shared with the public, and asked about the transparency. So in terms of the data, there's been no change in policy. Um, and I have to admit this was taking me a bit by surprise, but we looked into it. Um, yes, we, we were receiving early on when we had smaller numbers, receiving uh, daily updates on the uh, long-term care outbreaks. Um, but as the numbers increase, the, the actual 
person power to get that information every day and collate it was taking hours and hours and hours of epidemiology time um, because we, we do not have uh, an IT system that allows us to do that efficiently. So we went to aggregate numbers, which we report on every day, and we went to uh, um, uh, still reporting the outbreaks and then the aggregate numbers, and then on a periodic basis, um, getting the more detailed numbers. Um, so uh, it's not a policy change, it was merely um, trying to keep up with the, the amount of data that we were trying to collect. Um, and we are certainly willing to provide um, the aggregate numbers as we get them. And I do try and present that information uh, in our statements and on our daily briefings. Let's bring in Terry Lake, the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Uh, Terry Lake, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me again, Jill. Uh, what is your response in hearing that uh, about why we're not getting those specific numbers? Well, disappointed uh, because it, it's evident that there has been uh, a policy change in, in two ways, really. Uh, we're not getting the data that was available uh, previously up until the beginning of November. And uh, also health authorities now have a different definition of an outbreak, so that, that certainly is a policy change. It used to be any uh, staff member that was found positive, uh, the nursing home was considered in an outbreak. Now that's considered enhanced surveillance and so you know there has been changes in policy and the lack of access to data uh, is important because when you're operating a nursing home you want to find out what's going on around you because if you know that there are x number of cases at a, a home close to you you're going to be super vigilant even more than than normal and you know that kind of information is helpful uh, as operators try to keep this virus out of nursing homes. Uh, are there other jurisdictions, from what I understand, there are places, other provinces, places in Canada that do actually keep uh, these numbers? And uh, I think w w what people took some issue with, with her comment also was that you don't need an epidemiologist to crunch these numbers. You need an IT person or you need somebody who's able to, to do that part of the equation. Yeah, I found that surprising as well. I mean, obviously, in terms of IT systems, you know, a, a shareable uh, Excel spreadsheet is really all you need. And if we can keep track of the number of vaccines that we have in stock and the number of vaccines that are delivered in each care home, surely we can do the same for positive cases of COVID uh, among staff and, and residents. So I, I am surprised and, and um, baffled uh, by, by the response because every other province that I know of is providing this information. If you go to the Ontario uh, public health site, you can find all that information uh, almost in real time. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, the vaccine rollout and what we heard yesterday as well about uh, the fact that uh, long-term care facilities will be uh, prioritized, they'll be in the first group, as will workers, as will essential visitors? Well, yeah, apart from the, you know, the delay over Christmas, um, you know, we're, we're excited about uh, the fact that the vaccine is getting into nursing homes now uh, with the ability to move the vaccine. Uh, that's going to speed things up a lot and, uh, you know, is, is certainly a, uh, provides a sense of relief. What we are concerned about is the reported hesitancy on the part of, you know, a, a significant portion of workers in long-term care to get the vaccine. And we haven't heard of a plan from uh, the provincial health officer on on how we're going to deal with that. Uh, a survey by Safe Care BC found that 
15% of people said they would not take the vaccine. Another 28 were somewhat hesitant. Uh, and we've talked to operators who have said that up to 50% of their staff have said that they probably will not elect to get the vaccine. So what do we do in that case? Do we test these people, um, you know, regularly to make sure they're not positive? Do we prevent them from working on the front lines? You know, we need a strategy to deal with, with that if it becomes pervasive. And, and that is a real concern. And when do we come up with that? Because that seems like it should be something that should be a priority. And we've talked about this before, even when talking in the past, talking about the flu. And it was an honor system that if you were a visitor to long-term care, you were to have had a flu shot. If you didn't have a flu shot, you were to wear a mask. I know uh, nurses fought that. Nurses didn't have to wear a mask. But, but how do we figure that out now when we're talking about a vaccine for COVID-19? Well, that's a good question and uh, one that, you know, we have already posed to the ministry and and have not had a response uh, at this point. Uh, But, um, you know, I guess there there are some options. You you could say, well, you know, we need to assign you to other duties, but then that's going to leave the front line short. Or we could say, look, we have rapid tests. We've got 100,000 of them sitting collecting dust in this province. We could use those on a two or three times a week basis for those uh, uh, staff that are not vaccinated to ensure that they're not bringing uh, COVID into a nursing home. So those are some, you know, just uh, sort of speculative things that we could do that, that we've come up with. But, you know, we, we'd love to hear a plan from the Ministry of Health and the Provincial Health Officer on how we're going to manage that if, in fact, it becomes significant. But getting back to the data, if we know that nursing homes in a specific area are having a high number of cases, that is a great argument to use with your staff to say, look, you you really should consider getting this vaccine uh, to protect the residents when we know that there are so many cases around us. Uh, and, and I guess that's part of the, the issue, too, or, or one of the questions that I don't think we've really had a clear answer to is why we're seeing such a large percentage or a significant percentage of healthcare workers who are hesitant to get the vaccine. Well, don't forget that most of the frontline workers in long-term care are, are women, and uh, many are, um, you know, of childbearing age, and, and they may be concerned about a vaccine if they could possibly uh, become pregnant. So there's there's that. And so we need to do a lot of education uh, for people. And we're, we're certainly working uh, to do that, to provide the right information to people. Um, but again, it's uh, it, it may be a very real concern for some people uh, if they're thinking about uh, pregnancy. And, and so we have to have a plan to deal with uh, people who have a legitimate reason not to take the vaccine. Uh, can you as an association then go uh, on your own and come up with a policy for the, the long-term care facilities and the facilities that are, are under your umbrella? Not really, because most of our uh, operators are in a unionized environment. And so there's, you know, there's a limited ability to, to um, put those kinds of conditions in place. Uh, but certainly the medical health officers uh, have greater powers uh, than, the, than the operators do. And, um, you know, to, to have a plan in place that we could reinforce, uh, I think, would be, would be something we, we really need to look at. Uh, would it be a different policy or could there be a different policy when talking about family members? And once we get back to a place when visitation is allowed, when the vaccine uh, is out there, uh, could there be a policy that you see where family members or visitors will not be allowed without a vaccine? Well, that's certainly more, I think, um, 
viable to do. Uh, and that's a, a question that we've also posed is that once all the residents and staff or, or those that want to take the vaccine have, have taken it and essential visitors have received it, uh, what then are are the other visitors that are allowed in once a week? Are, are they also to have the vaccine uh, or must we make uh, separate provisions? And again, we, we haven't heard because this direction really must come from uh, the provincial health officer in order for us to be able to um, to carry out uh, those recommendations. All right. Well, we will uh, wait and see what the answers are uh, as they come in. Terry Lake, thank you again so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Well, time to shift gears a little bit and take a look at real estate. And specifically, we're looking at real estate in the Fraser Valley and some new numbers that show a record-shattering December. When it comes to sales, more than 2,000 sales in that region, the strongest December on record. So what is fueling this spike in sales? Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Chris Shields, president of the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me, Jill. It's a pleasure to be on your show. So do we know what caused this to be such a big December when it comes to sales? Well, Jill, it's an excellent question. I mean, uh, we have never seen a December like this in the history of our board. But uh, what I would say, the number one factor that's driving this is low interest rates. What I'm telling my clients is the cost of money is on sale right now. Plus, add to that the fact that our industry's done an excellent job at keeping people safe while they buy and sell during this pandemic. And when we talk about that region specifically and the number of sales, I know anecdotally people are talking about the working from home and if people think that that's going to be a permanent thing, uh, taking advantage of that and getting, if there's not going to be a commute five days a week or, or even a few days a week, then why not make that move where you might get a bit more space? Is that part of this? Well, I'm certain that that's part of it. People are looking for bigger homes, more space. They want a yard for the kids and the dog. They want office space. Our homes are becoming more important than ever during this crazy time. And people are, are finding that they, they just want more space. So we're, we're having a lot of people see that there's more bang for your buck to be had in the Fraser Valley. I think that's part of what's driving this. And I mean, that's kind of always been the case, but is there a fear then that if this trend continues, that will inevitably push prices up as well? Well, there's no doubt about it that uh, lack of supply that we're currently experiencing and an unprecedented demand is putting upward pressure on prices. Like there's there's no doubt about it. But, uh, you know, there are definitely homes to be had that are affordable in the Fraser Valley. Uh, so walk us through, if you can, the types of homes, because I think when we, we talk about this, people will automatically assume, OK, we're talking single family homes. Maybe in some cases we're talking about acreage and people are taking advantage of that. But what in your from what you've seen, what's most popular? The most popular is the detached home followed closely by townhomes. People are looking for family-sized homes in the Fraser Valley. That's really the, the, the bulk of what we're seeing. There's still condo sales happening and they're very strong. But it's, it's really the family-sized homes that are, are most sought after right now. And like you said, uh, the homes with the, the bit of grass or the bit of a yard, if you have a young family, yes. or to get, to get yes. that space. 
Yeah, for sure. And for detached homes, for example, Jill, the typical price of a detached home in Vancouver is around one and a half million, actually a little over that. And typical price of a detached home in the Fraser Valley is a million. So there's plenty of homes in the Fraser Valley that are under a million, which brings into financing. It's easier to get financing when you keep it under the million dollar mark. And are you finding then or hearing that uh, in the past when transit might have been a big concern because people were planning to commute or making that part of their their work life, uh, that that's not as big of an issue now if somebody is then able to work something out where they are either completely working from home or part time working from home? Well, perhaps for those people that are just working from home, that it may be less of a factor, but we still need transit. I mean, it's still very important that we have uh, expansion of transit out in our communities. But yeah, I think you're right. There's more people working from home and they're finding that they can live and work in the Fraser Valley for a lot less than it would cost them to do so in Vancouver. Uh, did you anticipate this at all? Because I, I know everything was uncertain when the pandemic first started. Uh, and I think there was perhaps the assumption that real estate might slow down completely or pause completely because of that. But it doesn't look like that was the case. Yeah, well, I mean, it was certainly difficult to anticipate. There was We didn't see this coming. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's unprecedented the year that we've had. It's been going on really since July. We've seen record-breaking or or near-record-setting months of uh, real estate activity ever since July. And with the the supply then, that has to come from somewhere. I I mean, are these new homes that we're talking about or are people that are living in the Fraser Valley uh, retiring and moving elsewhere or where do you see the supply coming from? Majority of what we're seeing is people moving within the region. So, or within the same community. But uh, there's also people that we see moving from Vancouver uh, out into the valley because, again, as I mentioned, you do get such a, a bigger bang for your housing dollar if you're willing to cross that river. So, you know, there's a combination of things going on there, Jill. Do you think that this will help then also, like you said, it's not as though we just give up on the idea of expansion of transit or the the infrastructure that's needed. Uh, if more people are, are moving to the Fraser Valley and, and it's growing, does that help then, do you think, with getting more attention paid to transit? Because it does kind of seem like an area that certainly hasn't been at the top of the priority list when it comes to transit projects. Well, recently, I think it was uh, just, just this past fall, um, Premier Horgan announced that he was gonna he was committed to seeing the expansion of the of the SkyTrain line out to Langley. And of course that's contingent on federal government matching those funds. But we desperately need uh, transit in our communities. We need the infrastructure. So we're definitely hoping that that still happens. But as you mentioned earlier, yeah, more people are working from home. So for some people it's less of an issue, but for the bulk of us, we still want that uh, infrastructure in place. And I know there's no crystal ball and it's impossible to look ahead and know what's going to happen, especially in real estate. But do you anticipate this trend will continue? Well, what I'm hearing from our chief economist at BCREA is that, yes, we're expecting a strong market for 2021. The interest rates are not predicted to climb anytime soon. We've got uh, strong demographic fundamentals and population growth. And we're, we're cautiously optimistic that this will be a positive year for buyers and sellers. But given the fact that we've had such a low supply and uh, recently uh, unprecedented increased demand, it's clearly a seller's market. And it would be, if, if consumers are thinking about selling, now would be the time for them to list. It's a fantastic time. And you touched on the fact that this industry has been able to continue uh, safely 
during the pandemic. I know there have been a few blips in open houses in the beginning, strongly discouraged, and people were uh, told if they were selling their place to do it by appointment only. Uh, How has that kind of shaped the industry or how is the industry adapting and continuing that way? Well, I think that's part of what uh, has fueled this market is the fact that the industry did adapt so well. We increased the number of photos that we can attach to a listing on our multiple listing system from 20 to 40. And we also moved away from open houses into more virtual tours and virtual open houses. So that allows the buyer from the comfort and safety of their own home to view the possible homes that they'd like to consider purchasing. And we also moved to online electronic documents for signatures and all the paperwork that we have to process. We're having more Zoom meetings with clients instead of sitting in their in their kitchen at their kitchen table. We're, we're adapting very quickly and the, the consumers in the market have responded by saying, you know, we're comfortable that the industry has responded uh, so well that they feel safe to to conduct business during this pandemic. All right. Interesting numbers out of the Fraser Valley. Chris Shields, thanks so much for joining us to share them with us today. Thank you very much for having me, Jill. Have a great day.